0: Please open in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. Uh, We are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark this morning, and today we come to the first 12 verses of chapter uh, 12. We have been seeing for the last few weeks that Jesus is having this battle uh, with these leaders in Israel that was precipitated by his cleansing of the temple Uh, back earlier in chapter 11, verse 15 through 19, and we will see for the next few weeks uh, sort of this battle of leadership uh, between Christ, who is the true authority that comes from God, and between the false leaders of Israel, whose authority, as we saw last week, comes from man. So with that introduction out of the way, let us give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours." And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we read here of your beloved Son and how he was treated shamefully even among his own. Father, we know that we too, day after day, from time to time, treat your beloved Son, the one we claim to be our Lord and Savior, shamefully. And we pray, O Father, that you would turn our hearts to thee, that through the reading and preaching of this word, you would give us due respect and love for your beloved Son, that we would live holy lives before him and seek to live in a manner that is worthy of his calling upon our lives. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, Amen. Today we continue to see Jesus' combat with the leaders in Israel, as I mentioned earlier. Last week we mentioned how Jesus' public cleansing of the temple was really ultimately seen as an indictment on the leaders within Israel. And after that cleansing, the leaders of Israel sort of come out of the woodwork as we're going to see all the way up into chapter 12, verse 34. You're going to have leaders represented by the Herodians, by the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, Pharisees, Sadducees, all of them coming out after this public demonstration of an indictment on the leaders of Israel with the cleansing of the temple. And last week in chapter 11, verse 27 through 33, uh, we saw round one, if you will, of this battle. Between Jesus and the chief priests, scribes, and elders. And today, following that round one battle, Jesus here gives us a parable uh, that will concern a vineyard. Uh, now, I just want to give some direction as to where we're going to go today. Basically, what I want to do first is just give a general uh, overview, a general exposition of the passage itself, and then we will close with three points of application. Uh, So first, the general exposition of this passage. Uh, Verse 1, in this parable, we are told a man plants a vineyard and puts a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Now, in the ancient world, you would have stone walls often erected around vineyards in order to keep out animals. Uh, and intruders and the towers provided some sort of shelter especially during uh, the time of the grape harvest where it would be ripe for intruders to come in uh, now what is significant here in this parable is that the tower and the wall really have nothing to do with the remainder of the parable it really adds no nothing to the parable itself It appears that Jesus is mentioning this really in order to make perfectly clear to his Jewish audience and to the leaders that he is speaking to that what is being alluded to here is Isaiah 5, the very uh, chapter that we read in our unison reading of scripture, uh, which we saw then was speaking of a vineyard. And the vineyard in Isaiah 5 verse 7 is said to be explicitly there by Isaiah, the house of Israel, the men of Judah. So the vineyard we are to see clearly is alluding to the fact that the vineyard is the house of Israel, the men of Judah. But we see here in uh, Mark 12 with this parable uh, a difference, a distinct difference from Isaiah 5. Uh, In Isaiah 5, the judgment comes on the vineyard itself, but here the judgment is clearly, given the context of this passage, on the leaders of the vineyard, on the leaders of the house of Israel and the men of Judah. Verse 12, Mark will make this clear as he ends up, as he closes off and summarizes the passage. He says, there and they, that being the chief priests, scribes, and elders of last week, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So the background here we are to see of this parable is Isaiah 5 and judgment upon Israel. But here, Jesus makes clear that the judgment that falls on Israel as a whole ultimately rests in the false shepherds and the false leaders within Israel and within that temple that Jesus had publicly cleansed. These tenants, as we see here in the parable, that the owner leases out the land to then are really to be understood as the leaders of Israel. Uh, most likely represented specifically by the priests, given the context of this passage. Actually, in chapter 11, verse 27, we are told that he came back to Jerusalem and then he came into the temple. So he is giving this parable within the temple. And it is clear here he's speaking of the tenants and we should most likely see these leaders specifically as the priests. We are told the owner goes away. This was a Common practice in the ancient world where you would have an absentee landowner, or excuse me, landlord. He would go somewhere else, perhaps to another piece of land that he owned, and he would lease out the vineyard for tenants to care for that vineyard while he was gone. Uh, The Lord here, who is the owner, instituted for the people of Israel the priesthood. And the priesthood's primary role was to keep holy that temple that they were to care for. And to keep holy as a whole the people of Israel. Now, the reference to the servants is clearly a reference to the Old Testament prophets. Time and time again, in places like Jeremiah and Isaiah, we will see that prophets are often referred to as servants. So we should see the tenants as the false leaders in Israel, and these servants as the faithful prophets that God sends uh, to call these leaders to account. Uh, These servants come to gather fruit from the tenants, and then we see the outcome of them coming to gather fruit. They are first beaten, then struck on the head, and finally they are killed, these prophets. Here is a clear reference to the fact that God, God sent prophet after prophet to Israel in order to proclaim God's word to his people, Time and time again, the leaders within Israel rejected the prophets and the prophets plea for them to repent and bear fruit in keeping with obedience and truth. Rather than listening to the prophets, the prophets we are told here in this parable, the tenants, are treated shamefully. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus says these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you, desolate. Verse six, after sending the servants, the prophets, the owner being the Lord has sent a beloved son who the owner is going to send to the tenants. Surely this owner says they will listen to the beloved son. Now, what is of note here is that it is the beloved Son, the beloved Son. Mark has used this same phrase twice before in this gospel, first in Mark 1, verse 11, at Jesus' baptism, when he is anointed with the Holy Spirit, and we hear the words of God the Father from the heavens, saying, Behold, my beloved Son. We saw it again in chapter 9 at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is transfigured before the eyes of Peter, James, and John, and they see his glory and his power. And there again, the Father from heaven says the words, Behold, my beloved Son. So here, by referring to this Son as the beloved Son, shows us that this Son is none other than Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of the Holy Spirit who has come, in power, and in glory. Yet in verse 7 through 8, what do we find? We find that the tenants kill the son, clearly a foreshadowing of Jesus's death on the cross, which we will see in a few weeks. Verse 9, the result of this is the destruction of the tenants with the vineyard given to others. We saw back, you recall, back in chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever says to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, it will be done for them. There, when we looked at that passage, we saw that Jesus was really speaking of the temple mount, that temple that they have just left, that Jesus had publicly cleansed and placed a public judgment on. And we saw there what he was essentially saying was that through the new leadership represented by Christ and the apostles, the old leadership of Israel was being thrown into the sea. It was being expunged and done away with. A new leadership has dawned with the beloved son represented by his apostles. Ephesians 2 Verse 19 through 20, Paul says these words, You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Which leads us naturally into verse 10 through, se- to through, a- verse 10 through 11 uh, in our parable where Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 verse 22 through 23. And there he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now this psalm tells of really one of those stones which had been brought to the building site of Solomon's temple and the stone was discarded as unfit for the sanctuary. Yet those who rejected it did not realize that it was perfectly shaped to be the capstone of the porch. The stone that the builders rejected was the one which would hold everything together. Jesus, who was despised and rejected by the leaders, was actually the only way into God's presence. John 2, Jesus will say, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And John says explicitly that Jesus was referring to his own body. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the temple. He is the place where God's presence is found. He is what holds all of redemptive history together. He is what holds all the promises from Genesis to Revelation together. He is the reason the Westminster Confession of Faith can say of the scriptures that there is consent in all of its parts. He is the glue. Without him, it all crumbles. He is the cornerstone. He is what holds all of redemptive history together. He is the place where God's presence Is found. And if there is to be any fruit gathered by the Lord among his people, their work must be done in, through, and around him. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Without him, there is no fruit. There is only a house that is left desolate. So we see that this parable is ultimately a foreshadowing of the beloved Son that is going to be rejected by his own people, the very ones that were anticipating Messiah. So we see that this is about the beloved son, a parable that is foreshadowing Christ's own death at the hands of his own people. And I just want to close here this morning with three quick points of application. First, evil evil goes from bad to worse. Evil goes from bad to worse. Notice the progression of evil from verse 3 to verse 5. First, God's servants are beaten. Second, they are struck in the head until finally they are killed. And then the son himself is killed. The evil that leads to the killing of the beloved son what was, was something that was growing within Israel for some time. And it's reached its culmination. It's not as though Jesus happened to come at a time when there was these particularly bad leaders that were going to treat Jesus shamefully. Rather, this has been something that has been building within Israel for some time. Evil goes from bad to worse. In in other words, the evil that beats the prophets... The evil that treats the prophets shamefully, the evil that strikes the prophets on the head is the same evil that kills the beloved son. It's just the evil spirit now in full bloom. It's the evil spirit now from its infant stage into its adult stage. The infamous serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, it is said when he was a child, he would kill and torture animals an evil certainly that we would all admit is an evil yet that evil was unchecked and it moved into its adult stage where he no longer killed and tortured animals He killed and tortured human beings themselves evil goes from bad to worse it's why sin brothers and sisters is never just a little hiccup it's never just a little mistake that really isn't that big of a deal Because the heart that does the little sins is the same heart that commits the big ones. As Matthew 5, as Jesus teaches us, the heart that lusts after a woman is the heart that commits adultery. The heart that hates a brother is the heart that murders. Sin, whether big or small, really at the end of the day boils down to one thing. It is rebellion against God. It is lawlessness. And whether that sin is a small rebellion, such as beating or striking in the head, or whether that sin is killing, at the end of the day, sin is sin. Sin is rebellion against God. It is lawlessness. And sin that goes unchecked, unconfessed, unrepented of, will lead us to do things we never thought we were capable of doing, killing Messiah, the beloved son. So we learn that sin must be checked, confessed, repented of early and often, because sin goes from bad to worse. Second point of application, the dangers of presuming on God's favor. The dangers of presuming on God's favor. We see it here and with the leaders in Israel and really throughout Israel's history. Israel made the mistake time and time again of thinking that because God had chosen them as his special people, they would never be judged by him. No matter how lawless they were, no matter how much their sin went unchecked and unconfessed and unrepented, despite all their lawless deeds, God would never destroy them. Just listen to these words from Jeremiah 7. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Behold, you trust in your deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, Make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. Behold, my wrath will be poured out on this place and it will burn and not be quenched. Israel has presumed on their covenant relationship with God and their relationship with the temple of the Lord. And in their presumption, they take sin lightly. They soil God's good name in their actions, yet they keep on thinking that God is somehow for them. Unless we think that this is just merely a warning for Israel, we need to read Romans 11 again. There in Romans 11, in the latter half of Romans 11, Paul will make explicitly clear that the failures of Israel serve as a warning and as an example for us as a church. if we begin to presume on the kindness and favor of God we too will be swallowed up in God's wrath if we simply assume we will be blessed because we utter Christ's name on our lips all the while soiling his name in our actions and in our beliefs we too like Israel will be judged it is one of the most troubling trends I think in Christendom today that So often the love and forgiveness that is found in Christ really equals and means that holiness really isn't that important. We might say holiness is important, but we kind of wink as we say it, don't we? Because if I'm not that holy after all, I've got that fail safe. Jesus will forgive me for anything. But if there's anything that we have learned after the last few weeks with Jesus' encounter with these leaders in Israel is that Jesus is condemning the leaders of Israel because they are not holy. And he is handing the role of leadership over to his disciples so that there will be the opposite effect, holiness among both the leaders and the people they are put in charge to lead. Christ has not come and made himself known so that there will be a lack of holiness No, he has come and made himself known so that there will be holiness among his people. Children walking in the ways of the Lord. Romans 8, Paul says these words. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. With the coming of Christ, the importance of holiness is not lowered. It is heightened. It is strengthened. God has sent his son so that he might see himself in his blood-bought children. He has sent his son so that he might see his glory and his holiness reflected in those who he has bought with the blood of his son, unlike it was with the leaders in Israel and Israel as a whole at the time of Christ's coming. Holiness is important. It is the end game. It is the chief goal of salvation that we are to be holy as the Lord himself is holy, that we are to learn from the failures and the mistakes of the Israel of the past. Third point of application, and finally, God works in and through apparent defeat. God works in and through apparent defeat. How does Christ become the chief cornerstone? How does Christ become the rock of our salvation? It is through his apparent defeat at the hands of these tenants. It is through his apparent defeat at the cross of Calvary. It's interesting in this parable when the tenants say of the son, come, let us kill him. That same phrase is only used once in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint, which many of the New Testament writers relied heavily upon. It's found only once in the whole Old Testament. It's found in Genesis thirty-seven twenty, when the brothers of Joseph, in their rage and in their jealousy, seek to kill Joseph. And do you remember how that story goes? Joseph is sold into slavery. He's accused of of assaulting Potiphar's wife. He ends up in a prison. It seems all is hopeless, that Satan has won. But the story ends, as many of us know, with Joseph becoming Pharaoh's right-hand man. And Joseph saying to his brothers at the end, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. These tenants decide to kill the son. And they mean it for evil, but God means it for good. It is a loud and emphatic theme throughout scripture which really culminates at the cross of Christ, that God uses Satan's own devices for his own good ends. God uses the darkness and the defeats in his children's lives to bring joy and peace Peace and victory in and through Christ. What darkness, brothers and sisters, troubles you today? What are you the victim of? What sins, what cruelties are you the victim of? What is it in your life that might cause you today to say, I am defeated. Satan has won. Brothers and sisters, what we learn from the cross of Christ is that God brings peace not by skirting around the darkness not by typing into his gps an alternate route no he goes through the darkness and he goes through the darkness which is meant for evil but he means it for good take courage The very darkness and difficulties that surround you this day is in the hands of a sovereign God that brings victory through crucifixion, that brings light through darkness, that brings peace through Satan's own devices. Be of good courage, Christian soldier. For your enemy's devices is in the hands of a sovereign and reigning and conquering king. You cannot lose. Take what it is that you have before you and don't skirt around it. Don't try to hold up this idea that you can make peace for yourself outside of the cross. What is revealed to us in the cross of Calvary is that peace is found through crucifixion. Light is found through darkness. That the very troubles and Satan's devices is like a speck in the hands of an almighty God who uses them for your good in and through Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you the perspective we get at the cross as luther put it the theologian of the cross is one that sees glory in shame that sees victory in apparent defeat that sees joy in what the world brings sorrow and so father that is to be our outlook that is to be the orientation of our lives day in and day out we will be met with sorrows and difficulties and darkness in this fallen world. But thanks be to God that Christ has overcome this world, that the light has shined in the darkness, and that that darkness has not been skirted around, but it has gone through the darkness in order to bring light. So I pray, O Father, that this day you would lift up our weary souls, lift up our struggling hearts in our difficulties in life and give us good courage to fight on with the utmost confidence that even the struggles we deal with you use for our own good ends and for the glory of our suffering servant now glorified at your right hand we pray and we ask all these things in the strong name of jesus christ our lord amen